it is July 27th, 2014. Our message today is called War and Wardrobe. War and Wardrobe. I would like to begin in an unusual place. I want to tell you that Romans 12, starting in verse 20, is very, very good advice. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then we have this imperative statement. Do not be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to tell you that there is a growing evil in this world. There's a growing many kinds of evil. But right now, Islam is definitely on the rise. I came across a message from 2010 that everything that the Holy Ghost told us in 2010 and 2014 has already happened. We have seen unprecedented flexing of Islamic muscles. Let me go ahead and get all of the political correctness out of the way. I am an Islamophobe. I am anti-Islamic. I am completely against, stand, juxtapose, adverse to, any other way you can say it. I hate Islam. I believe Islam is of the devil. If that's not clear enough, let me say that it is satanic, that every part of it is bad and nothing is good. Now, while I'm saying that, let me also tell you, I love Muslims. I love Muslims with all of my heart. I believe that we've dropped the ball and not smiled in the face of adversity. We've not hugged in the face of jihad. We have not loved all and preached to all. So while I hate Islam, I love Muslim people. I want you to not become confused as we preach today. As I mentioned to you, hopefully in the first 15 or 20 minutes of this message, the evils of Islam do not take a carnal approach towards Muslim people. What Muslim people need more than anything is to meet a sincere, spirit-filled, powerhouse Christian that can show a better way. If you can pray five times a day to a warlord with a pedophile prophet, then imagine what you could do if you got spirit-filled, and fell in love with the king of Jews. There will be no peace be upon him when I speak the name Muhammad today because I do not wish peace upon him. He is burning in hell. When I speak the name Allah, I am not talking about Yahweh God. I am not talking about God the Creator. He is a warlord is what he is. He is satanic. Is that clear? Now we've got all of our political correctness out of the way. And now I can put on my softer, gentler side. I wanted to start with you with the idea that there has been a fundamental shift in our nation. I'm not preaching about patriotism today. I'm not preaching a nationalistic message. I am in love with the king of the Jews and I happen to live in the United States of America. I would have been happy to have been sent to any country. I want to work for the kings on domestic and foreign soil. I want to work for the glory of Jesus. But since we stand here, and last week we addressed the ills of the church, this week I would like to talk to you about the resulting shift in our nation. 
If we're going to do this, the place that we ought to start is near the beginning of our country. Immediately after the Revolutionary War, the United States was lost in its naval power. There were no ships of any kind. Warring with Britain, we mostly relied upon the French Navy. What this meant was that American merchant ships immediately after the Revolutionary War were at danger on the high seas. And they were at danger on the high seas because then and now North African countries that were dominated by Islamic warlords were taking captive American sailors. Not just American sailors, but also European sailors. A man who was a diplomat then and not yet a president named Thomas Jefferson at the time was the ambassador to France. He's the father of Jeffersonian democracy. He believed in a smaller government. He liked limited military powers. In every sense of the word, he exudes conservative ideals. But in one case, he believed in a use of military power. This led to something called the First Barbary War. Before we get there, I want to tell you what led up to the First Barbary War. If your ships were being attacked as a country and you had some 115 sailors being held in Morocco, Tripoli, Algiers, and Tunisia, if these countries had made a living off of extorting your country by taking captive its citizens, you might decide to do something. And what began to happen is around July 25th of 1785, a schooner named Maria was captured. This was kind of the beginning of the straw that broke the camel's back because the United States had actually budgeted in its national budget $40,000 a year in bribe money to Muslim nations. We still do the same thing. We call it humanitarian aid. They budgeted $40,000 a year for the nations of North Africa because they knew that every year Islam would take captive American citizens and hold them for ransom. So Thomas Jefferson goes along with another president to North Africa a man that is not president at the time, his name was John Adams. They were both diplomats. And they tried to negotiate a $40,000 release, and they can't get there. No amount can be settled on less than $660,000. What you need to understand is at the time, that was about a sixth of the United States' gross domestic product. That's A lot has changed. In other words, this was an extraordinary amount. The United States eventually yielded. Congress would not support a war. We were war weary. Nobody wanted to fight with Islam. We had just come out of a revolutionary war. Our economy was depressed and we didn't know what to do. We paid upwards of a million dollars a year for almost 15 years. A number that some economists say was 20% of the United States economy every year to not have to fight with Islam. Every year Thomas Jefferson approached the Congress. Every year he issued written letters to the then president. And he said, I have met with their ambassador. This is a direct quote. It's the second slide. 
for about, this is Thomas Jefferson's writing. It was written in their Koran that all nations which had not acknowledged the prophet were sinners, whom it was the right and the duty of the faithful to plunder and enslave, and that every Muslim man who was slain in this warfare was sure to go to paradise. He said the man that was the first to board the vessel had one slave over and above his share. These are Thomas Jefferson's own words after dealing with the ambassadors in the North African countries. He said it was impossible. He came to the conclusion that there was only one way in which a nation could deal with the Islamic problem, and that was through the medium of war. If we could go back to the previous slide. The United States Navy came into being in 1798. It was ordered for one purpose and one purpose only, to deal with the Islamic problem. That's why we have the U.S. Department of the Navy. The first naval battle since the Revolutionary War was with Muslim pirates in 1801. And the first marine invasion in United States history was in 1804. You can go to the next slide. It was led by a man named Stephen Decatur. And from it, we get the song from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We forget our history. We forget the lessons of history. Appeasement of Islam only encourages the increase of Islam. Last year, I went to more than 20 countries. And in every country, this is a problem. In many countries where the church once reigned, the church is on the decline and Islam is on the rise. Christians have cowered in the face of this obstacle. And our king cowers to no one. The very earth and sky flee his presence. I would like to say that while we're looking at this problem, it is important to understand that men used to speak with clearer speech. Men used to call it as they saw it. Stephen Decatur is the first national war hero since the Revolutionary War. He gained international fame, even in European isles. He gained international fame for one reason and one reason only. When a United States frigate was captured, he sailed the USS Enterprise all the way to the shores of Tripoli. And when it was clear that they would not be able to recapture what was the USS Philadelphia, in the middle of the night, they swam to the ship, climbed on top of it, and lit it on fire, rather than to allow Islam to use the United States gifts of God to extort people. Thomas Jefferson... John Quincy Adams, men like this said in their day after reading the Koran clearly what we know after reading the Koran. It is distinctly different than what George W. Bush said. Islam is a religion of peace hijacked by a few. It is distinctly different than what President Obama says when he calls the Koran the Holy Koran and quotes it with fluency. John Quincy Adams said the following. He's the sixth president of the United States. With preternatural energy of a fanatic and a fraudulent spirit of an imposter, proclaimed himself, he's speaking of Muhammad, 
as a messenger of heaven and spread desolation and delusion over an extensive portion of the earth, adapting all the rewards and sanctions of his religion to the gratification of sexual passion. He poisoned the sources of human felicity at the very fountain by degrading the condition of the female sex and the allowance of polygamy. And he declared undistinguishing and exterminating war as part of his religion against all the rest of mankind. Can you imagine if a president of the United States said such a thing today? Winston Churchill said of Islam, Wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live, a degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement and the next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that in Mohammedan law, every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property, either as a child, a wife, or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. How on earth could it become so fashionable to be so tolerant of enslaved women and children? He went on to say the influence of the religion paralyzes social development of all who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world. What would happen if world leaders said that today? And then let me ask you, are they just ignorant of the truth. Pulpits don't say it either, though. I want you to hear what a Methodist minister, did you hear me? A Methodist minister said of Islam. This is John Wesley. He says, Ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the espousers of it have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations. Such was and is at this day the rage the fury, the revenge of, of these destroyers of humankind. You probably will not get invited to host the latest presidential debate if you preach like that. What is it that everyone is scared of? It's almost as if we would rather stick our heads in the sand than take a stand against the devil and his wicked schemes. I would like to remind you, Christian, of what Ephesians 6 says. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, Jefferson was wrong. And he was astoundingly right. The medium with which you deal with Islam is not a navy, but it is the medium of war. It is spiritual war. It's the kind that says, I will not bow my knee or tuck my tail or stick my head in the sand at the evils of the day. I will rise up and preach the truth and love the unlovable and call upon the Almighty God and I will stand if no one else stands. The Sugarland Marriott a few years ago canceled an event because someone was critical of Islam. After so many bomb threats and death threats, they canceled the event. If we all cower, then you will find out what Sharia law looks like. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. 
It's our job to stand when we see injustice. When we fast, it's not just to hear from God. It's not to get a warm, fuzzy experience inside your soul. You fast to loosen the cords of injustice. You fast to get a right perspective on the world, to repent from your own thoughts and learn where to take your stand. Jesus said, when you pray, when you fast, when you give alms to the poor, not if. We never dreamed of such a fat, lazy, apathetic Christianity that let evil rise on its watch. Church, I'm telling you that we are being called into a struggle. And whether you want it or not, it's here. Go to a local swimming pool. Go to Walmart. Visit the neighborhood of Telfair. We are to love Muslim people. And when you see a burqa, you should think of a spiritual shackle and long and pray and fight to see liberation. When you see a man in a European bathing suit covered in hair and gold chains oiling himself at a swimming pool and his poor wife wrapped in bed sheets cooking under the sun at the same swimming pool, you should see it for what it is, denigrating to the female part of our race. You should see it as enslaving. The most liberating thing that has ever happened to a woman on this planet is when Jesus Christ was born through the Virgin Mary. We do not have two standards, one for men and one for women. We do not have two standards, one for black folks and one for white folks, one for Asian folks and one for everyone else. We do not have alternate standards. We have one God who has created all men equal. We're equally sinful and equally in need of a Savior. Islam offers no answer to the sin problem. Times have changed since the days of Jefferson, since the days of John Adams. Times have changed. We're living in a less biblically educated society. You can say that they're deists if you want. You can say that they were not really born-again believers if you want. You can point to evils in their life if you want. But there is no way around the fact that they were more biblically educated than the pastorate of today. In every one of their diaries of the founding fathers, in every one of their public writings and speeches, they referenced the word of God because they recognized it founded and formed this nation. Americans are not just less educated about the Bible, they're less educated about Islam. People are pretty sure that it's all basically the same because they've never read it. They don't know that Muhammad was married to a nine-year-old girl. They don't know that he cut the heads off of people in his own lifetime. They've never been to Islamic countries and seen the horror of female genital mutilation. They don't know what the results of Sharia law are. American presidents are much different than they used to be. I'd like you to watch this next clip for just a second. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, unless, of course, you understand. Boy, I spent peace several years in Indonesia and heard the call of the Azan at the break of dawn. In Ankara, I make clear that America is not and never will be at war with Islam. In fact, faith should bring us together, and Turkey's leadership in the alliance of civilizations.
Can faith bring us together if faith demands the subjugation of peoples? Can you really coexist? The Quran tells us, be conscious of God and speak always the truth. The Holy Quran teaches that whoever kills an innocent is as, it is as if he has killed all mankind. The Holy Quran tells us, O oh mankind, we have created you, male and a female, and we have made you into nations and tribes, so that you may know one another. People of the world can live together in peace. We know that is God's vision. Now that must be our work here on earth. Thank you, and may God's peace be upon you. Peace on earth sounds like a wonderful thing until you realize that it requires you to submit to Sharia law. That what is meant by peace is that you become Muslim. Nearly everything that the president said in his speech is directly contradicted in the Quran. Not only has the climate in our nation changed towards the Quran, it's changed towards the Bible itself. The Bible was once a respected work that was considered to have shaped our nation. Now it's mocked in the highest levels of our government. Watch this film and tell me whether it could have been said in Thomas Jefferson's day. Whatever we once were, we are no longer a Christian nation, at least not just. We are also a Jewish nation, a Muslim nation, and a Buddhist nation, and a Hindu nation, and a nation of non-believers. Which passages of Scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with uh, Leviticus, which uh, suggests slavery is okay, and that eating uh, shellfish is an abomination? Or we could go uh, with uh, Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith? Or should we just stick to the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that is so radical that it's doubtful that our own Defense Department would survive its application? To sum it up, the Quran is holy, but the Bible is a punchline for our politicians' jokes, something to be mocked. Saints, it's worth noting right now, take an assessment of the world. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Syria was once a Christian nation. Paul was on his way to Damascus, Syria when he had his experience. If you go to Dumar's Mediterranean Cafe, you will meet a man whose ancestry goes all the way back to the first century as Christians unrooted from Syria until today. Today it is Muslim. Libya, once populated by Jews and Christians, now Muslim and a place where you can murder United States ambassadors with impunity. Iran, once Christian. This is the great Persian Empire. Now Muslim. Egypt, the home of the oldest Christian civilization continuously on the planet outside of Israel. Today, Muslim. Iraq, we are seeing in the news a city like Mosul that Fabian is one hour from. You can look on my Facebook page. There is a picture of a house that has been marked for death because Christians lived there. When 
ISIS rolled in, everyone said they're extreme. They're no more extreme than Shiite ideology, no more extreme than Wahhabi ideology, no more extreme than other Sunni ideology in regard to Islam in a majority. When Islam is in a majority, it is commanded in the Quran to give three options. Convert to Islam, be subjugated through a Jiza tax, which by the way is everything you have and includes public humiliation, or to be killed. Mosul has had for 1,600 years a Christian presence and a service every week honoring Jesus until last week. First time in 1,600 years. Islam is designed to displace Christians and Jews through conversion, subjugation, or death wherever Muslims gain a majority status. I have one more film for you. says at least 17 members of the Syrian military and 14 civilians were killed in clashes over the weekend. Three died at a shooting during a funeral in Damascus. This video was provided by an anti-government group. Revolutionary forces in Libya say they have surrounded Gaddafi loyalists in the ousted dictator's hometown. Former rebels raised their flag at a convention center in Sirte. However, fierce fighting is still reported in some areas of that city. The case of the Iranian pastor sentenced to death for converting from Islam to Christianity has reportedly been referred to the country's supreme leader. Youssef Nadakarhi has, well, his stories received widespread attention. Seeking the opinion of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is said to be an unusual move on the part of the Iranian judiciary. The White House is expressing concern over continued violence against Coptic Christians in Egypt. The leaders of that group are blaming military rulers for not protecting them. Correspondent Leland Vittert shows us what's happening in Cairo. In running street battles reminiscent of the Egyptian Revolution, downtown Cairo burned as thousands of Coptic Christians protesting another church burning fought riot police. The army brought in armored personnel carriers to run down protesters. They run them down with tanks, said this demonstrator, and shoot them with bullets like this one. Christians gathered Monday to begin burying the nearly 30 people who died this weekend. Coptic Christians in Egypt have always been under threat, but enjoyed protection from former President Hosni Mubarak. Since Mubarak's resignation, violence has increased with reports of Muslim gangs raping Coptic women with impunity. Another church burning? I thought Islam was a religion of peace. Coptic Christians have always been under threat, they said. How could that be? Islam is a religion of peace. Muslim gangs raping Coptic women with impunity. What kind of peaceful religion executes pastors, rapes women, and burns churches in the 21st century? Friends, do you know what every nation mentioned had in common? Every nation in that one three-minute newscast, every one of them once had a very strong Christian church and a thriving Jewish population, and now those are in the extraordinary minority. Do you think that we have some work to do? See, I believe that it is our job to bring the light of the gospel to the rest of the world. 
And I don't think we get a pass if it's hard. I don't think we get a pass if it threatens our lives. I'm going to run through a couple Quranic passages for you and then I'm going to leave this subject behind because I want to move on to the answer, not the problem. But let me start with this. Let's consider Muhammad versus Jesus. If you want to know what a religion is like, perhaps we could consider its founder. See, because Jesus said things like, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. But in the Quran's third chapter or third surah in verse 28, it says, let not the believers take for friends or helpers unbelievers rather than believers. If any do that, in nothing will there be help from them from Allah except by way of precaution that ye may guard themselves from them. The Bible teaches to be friendly towards non-believers. Islam does not. When we examine Matthew 10 and verse 14, Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, you leave and you move on. Of course, some of the more respected and quoted Islamic scholars of all time, like Muhammad al-Burqari, they say whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. If you think that's isolated, then go to Dearborn, Michigan and find out why there are honor killings in Dearborn, Michigan. When we think of Jesus... Words like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy come to mind. But you need to know that the Quran says in the 48th surah and 29th verse, Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are ruthless to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. Are those essentially the same religion? How long will we put up with this lie? And how long will you stand by quietly while people make... Ignorant statements like Islam and Judaism are essentially the same. That's not true. It's never been true. It's not even close to true. And if you look at their contributions to the world, I dare you to try to classify them in the same category. Judaism brought life to the world. You're experiencing it today as a follower of Yeshua. You're a completion of Judaism. Islam has brought death on a mass scale. When you think of Jesus, you may have remembered these words. You have heard that it was said to men of old, you shall not kill and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But the Quran says this, Therefore, when ye meet unbelievers in fight, smite them at their necks at length. When ye have thoroughly subdued them, bind a bond firmly on them. Therefore is the time for either generosity or ransom until the war lays down its burdens. But those who are slain in the way of Allah, he will never let their deeds be lost. Let me ask you, when you read that the faithful in the book of Revelation are beheaded, what is one religion on the planet today that commands its followers to cut off the heads of unbelievers? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted. But the Quran in the second surah and 191st verse 
says, and slay them wherever ye find them and drive them out of the places whence they drove you out for persecution is worse than slaughter. Jesus said, you're blessed when people persecute you. Muhammad said, it would be better for you to slaughter them than to be persecuted. Everybody, who in here knows where John 3.16 is found? You can find it in any baseball game. If you've heard John 3.16, raise your hand. Well, let's look at the Islamic counterpart to it. It's the ninth surah and hundred and eleventh verse of what the current president calls the holy Quran. I choke on those words. Allah hath purchased of the unbelievers their persons and their goods. For theirs in return is the garden of paradise. They fight in his cause and slay and are slain. A promise binding on them in truth. Did Jesus tell you to go out and slay? then let us not call Muhammad and Jesus a prophet in the same sense of the word. In John 16, 2, Jesus said that the hour would come when men would kill you and think they were doing a service to God. In the ninth surah and the 29th verse of the unholy Quran, it says, fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath not been forbidden by Allah and, has, and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, Hold here for a second and think about this. Has anybody been to Genghis Grill? And have you seen a halal meat section? Well, if you see a piece of sausage in it, it's because I put it there. But you need to understand that the only reason I have not been beheaded for putting a piece of sausage there is because Islam is in the minority in Sugarland today. But if there is ever a day where Islam is in the majority, this ninth surah and 29th verse says, Fight those who believe not Allah nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden. In other words, you are commanded to fight against a man who wants to eat sausage. Say, well, Jews have their dietary code. They were not commanded to kill Gentiles for not obeying it, ever. In fact, if a Jew finds a dead deer on the road, he can't eat it, but he can sell it to you. In other words, it was to keep the people distinct, not to give them a pretext to persecute others. Let us pick back up here. Even if they are people of the book, until they pay the Jesus with a willing submission and feel themselves subdued. In other words, if you have heard that Muslims respect people of the book, well, apparently they do until they have sufficient strength not to. If you want a case in point from this week's news, why was there a Christian population in Mosul until last week? They've been reduced by 200,000 in the last three months. Why? Because Islam is the majority. Saints, do you want to live in a world like that? I do not. We could go on and on with these. The answer is evangelism. It's not hatred of Muslims. It's, it's not ostracization of somebody because they dress different than you. All political arguments aside, because it's not a political issue, it is a spiritual issue, evangelism is the answer. Go with me to Romans 10. Consider these words with me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many will be saved if they call on the name of the Lord? Everyone. 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard of? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Think on this for a second. When you're sent, you preach. When you preach, people hear. When they hear, they'll believe. When they believe, they'll call on the Lord. And when they call on the Lord, they will be saved. If no one goes, then no one gets saved. Where do apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists come from? They come from the pool of disciples. Jesus himself appoints them. Whose job is it to make disciples? It's my pastors. I pay him to do it. And sadly, pastors don't even disciple anymore. You know why we have potluck in our house? Why we hosted dinner last night? Why we hosted dinner the night before and do nearly every day? Because I believe discipleship is a lifelong process as we walk next to each other. I don't even think it's possible to occur from the pulpit to the pew. Rabbi Jesus taught people to walk as he walked. The teaching of the day was to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Follow so closely behind him that when he kicks up dust, it lands on you. Instead, we want a sage on a stage and we wonder why. Our nations declined on our watch. It is worth asking and answering this question. If we are no longer a Christian nation, whose fault is it? And when did that occur? There's one last video that I needed you to hear. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, on April 6th of this year, the President of the United States traveled halfway around the globe and in the nation of Turkey essentially proclaimed that the United States was not a Judeo-Christian nation. Now, I don't challenge his right to do that, nor do I dispute the fact that that is what he believes. But I wish that he had asked and answered two questions when he did that. The first question was whether or not we ever considered ourselves a Judeo-Christian nation. And the second one is if we did, what was that moment in time where we ceased to be so? If you ask the first question, Mr. Speaker, you find that the very first act of the first Congress in the United States was to bring in a minister and have... Congress led in prayer and afterwards read four chapters out of the Bible. A few years later, when we unanimously declared our independence, we made certain that the rights in there were given to us by our Creator. When the treaty was signed in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War and birthed this nation, the signers of that document made clear that it began with this phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. When our Constitution was signed, the signers made sure that they punctuated the end of it by saying, in the year of our Lord, 1787. And a hundred years later, in the Supreme Court case of Holy Trinity Church versus the United States, the Supreme Court indicated after recounting the long history of faith in this country that we were even a Christian nation. President George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, all disagreed with the President's comments and indicated 
how the, the Bible and Judeo-Christian principles were so important in this nation. And Franklin Roosevelt even led this nation in a six-minute prayer before the invasion of perhaps the greatest battle in history in the invasion of Normandy and asked for God's protection. And after that war, when Congress came together and said, where are we going to put our trust? It wasn't in our weapon systems or our economy or our great decisions here, but it was in God we trust, which is emboldened directly behind you. So if, in fact, we were a nation that was birthed on those Judeo-Christian principles, what was that moment in time when we ceased to so be? Isn't that a great question? What was the moment in time when which we ceased to so be? I want to tell you, church, that Jesus Christ told us in Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, You are the light of the world. Many people are comfortable with the idea that Jesus is the light of the world, and He is. But He Himself, the light of the world, declared that you were to be the light of the world. A city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. How can we beg for the second coming of the Lord and more than half of the world has never heard of His first coming? Is that the light of the world? Are we, are we the light of the world if more than half of the world's population sees no alternative but to follow paganism? And the huge majority are being influenced by the fastest growing religion in the world and they're followers of a pedophile satanic prophet who brings death and subjugation everywhere he goes. We can stand and say, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. He's already called us the light of the world. We have an obligation to the rest of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your... That they may see your... What is it that they're supposed to see? Your perfect doctrine. Your Christian t-shirt. What are they supposed to see? You know, a good deed becomes most evident when it's done for someone who is not being kind to you. You know, what if next time somebody cut you off in traffic, you didn't give them a one-finger salute, you gave them a hug? It's not uncommon in the HEB close to where I live for there to be fights in the grocery store. One woman sent another one to the hospital our first month in our new house. What is the solution for anger and satanic aggression and unchecked sensuality all around us? It's Jesus Christ displayed in your deeds that were prompted by faith. That they may say your good deeds and praise your... See, it's not about you. You were incapable of good deeds. But when His Spirit inhabited you, you were supposed to be the vessel of His good deeds. We are to be His hands and feet. Why do we feed orphans? Why do we travel around the world to build houses for widows? Why have we been to India seven times? Why do we do the things that we do? We don't even have carpet in our sanctuary. Why do we go do that? 
Because I think God has anointed us for one purpose and one purpose only. To be His hands and feet in the world. I want to tell you, you cannot get to the end of the Great Commission without first becoming a light in your own neighborhood. Until you have a personal revival, you will not have a corporate revival. Until you are so on fire that you can't shut up or let up or back up, then you cannot think that your neighborhood will be one to the Lord, much less the most wicked of Gentile powers. I would like to close this section of our message, Sermon 1, with 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants a few white, rich Americans to be saved. Who wants all those who are blessed with a Starbucks conveniently located in their lobby to be saved. Who wants all those with a McDonald's play lounge for a children's church to be saved. He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Who are the vessels of truth? Who is? Is it just Dustin? Who is a vessel of truth? How many of you claim to be born again in this building? How many of you say I'm born again and on fire for the Lord? I say prove it. Prove it. What you say is on the inside of you. Let it work on the outside of you. Shamelessly, unabashedly, throw away inhibition. Run at the most difficult of sinners. Let us take a, let's take a lesson from last century. Let's go for sinners and go for the worst. We pick up some of you on the bus and it's our honor to do so. There are only one location we can pick up people on a bus. You don't have neighbors. How many of you came with an empty seat in your car today? How many of you drive a vehicle designed for eight and you had three in it? I bet we have some room here to work evangelism. I know we're a nation of Christians, right? Except they kill their babies. They watch pornography. They praise Jesus one day and live like the devil the next, but supposedly we're a nation of Christians. I bet if you burn brightly enough, people would see something different in you. I bet they would see something that looked like a star hanging in the night expanse and they would follow it all the way to Jesus just as those wise men did from the Far East so many years ago. Church, we have a high responsibility. Turn with me to 1 Peter. This is sermon number 2. Are you done with me? You give up on me? Would you like to talk about the problem all day and not the solution? Hey, I founded the church. Is it all right if I take the liberty to preach more than one sermon? You're free to go. If what we do doesn't interest you, you're free to go. I'm going to give my life for this cause, though. I hope to beat you to that finish line. I hope to stand in the mezzanine next to King Jesus and watch you finish. I'm not working to protect this life of mine. I hope to give it away. Some said of me a few years ago, something's wrong with that pastor. He has a death wish. 
You show me a Christian that doesn't wish to go see Jesus and I'll show you a man that's not convinced of the reality of the kingdom of God. I don't love the pleasures of this world so much that I fear losing them. Church, it's time to wake up. The hour is late. What they understood a century ago was that we have to rise to face these evils. Now, we have trouble getting anyone's attention unless the price of gas or coffee goes up. And we spend four times on our average cup of coffee what my friends in India make in an entire day and think nothing of it. Are you in First Peter? I'm closing that message and moving on to this one. I think that what the president said about we are not and never will be at war with Islam is a ridiculous joke. Islam is at war with us. So I tell you what Peter said when he faced evils in his day. It's the first chapter and 13th verse of 1 Peter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. You know what I'm trying to do now? I'm trying to shape your minds. You know every time you turn on the television what they're trying to do? Shape your minds. You know, you go watch a movie, and I do it too. And you thought you went to go watch a science fiction action flick, and you found out you were watching propaganda for national health care. You thought you went to go see a movie about Jesus called The Son of God, and you found out it was a cleverly disguised ruse. We need to be careful what we let shape our minds. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Friends, we're not ignorant anymore. What is it specifically we're not ignorant of? We're not ignorant of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return and there will be grace, there will be mercy, there will be reward for those who expended themselves in his service. What happened to the man who buried his talent? We're going to find out because I know of lots of buried talent in this world. Oh, church, so they call you a fanatic. It's a compliment. It means you love Jesus more than they do. So they call you a cult. It means you're at the church that is fired up a few blocks from theirs that is dead. They say that you're unloving. Well, they just don't know you well enough because it is not loving to let people continue in slavery if you have the answer. I would like to talk to you now from Exodus 12. Please turn to Exodus 12, and if this doesn't bless you, I'll be surprised. Are you ready to be blessed? Now look out, I'm not talking about angel feathers and gold dust. I'm talking about blessed with revelation from heaven. I'm not talking about something carnal and base designed to appeal to your greed so you can line my pockets. I'm talking about a revelation from heaven. And if you get a revelation from heaven, it demands a response on the earth. A revelation demands a response. Are you in Exodus 12? Read with me in verse 41. At the end of the 430 years, 
to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. He said, what on earth could be a revelation in that? The rabbis call God among many things. Yahweh Saba. Saba means divisions. Yahweh Saba is sometimes translated Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty. They're all insufficient. Some translations say all the Lord's armies left Egypt. It's also an insufficient translation. Armies implies that you have divided people groups, many armies. The Lord has a single army, but He has divisions in it. You're sitting in rows. I don't know why we do it, but we do. And every row has seats. A division means that you have a rank and file. It means that every man has a place in the standing army of God. I say, have you taken your place? If one man marches out of step with the Spirit, what does it do to those around? If one man will not march into battle, what happens to his spot? Well, the army will not stop because it's led by Yahweh God. He is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Saba. The question is, have you fulfilled your spot? I want you to notice in verse 51 of the same chapter. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their, by their divisions. Every man, every woman, every child had a spot to fill. And you do too. Not just in this church, in the larger body of Christ. Every person has a role. Let me ask you if you showed up for your assignment two days a week in the United States Army, would that be acceptable? How many men in this congregation or women have served in the armed forces? If you were AWOL five of seven days a week, what would your commanding officer say? See, we need to be full-time Christians. There is an army with actual divisions and the Lord is the head of that army. When He delivered Israel from Egypt, when He liberated His people from slavery, He did it as the Lord of the divisions of the army of God. You can't be delivered from Egypt if you will not take your place in His army. Pastor, I'm doing everything I can. Well, good. You're the one. And I guess we're not talking to you. The rest of us have still got some work to do to catch up to King Jesus. The army of the Lord by their divisions. I'd like to talk to you about how merciful the Lord is, and you don't have to look further than the 13th chapter of Exodus. Start with me in the 17th verse. When Pharaoh let the people go. Don't you love how the Bible says that? God's not concerned with credit. He's not insecure at all. He says, you know, when Pharaoh let the people go, that's like being a heavyweight fighter and saying when the other guy decided to lay down. When Pharaoh let the people go, why did Pharaoh let the people go? Because God put his foot on that side of his face and there was nothing he could do about it. He exercised judgment on the gods of Egypt. Our king is waiting for the opportunity through you to show up that devilish power called Islam and liberate its prisoners. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not let them, did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country 
though that way was shorter. Go figure, God's not into efficiency. What are our church growth gurus going to do? God is not interested in the shortest possible route. What is he interested in? For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God knows you're frail. He knows you're scared. We got bumper stickers that say, ain't scared, and you're liars. I come from a long line of rednecks, alcoholics, drug addicts. This generation is going to change all future generations. But those men had gun racks on their pickup trucks. Their back tires were twice as wide as their front tires. They were from places like High Point, Mississippi. And their bumper sticker said, ain't scared. And they spent every dollar they had to stay alive because they were scared to death to meet the one whose eyes blaze like fire and earth and sky flee from his presence. Don't you believe it? So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Do you mean to tell me that the day they left in rank and file in their divisions they were armed? Who disarmed us? Did we just lay down our arms? Did we decide the battle wasn't worth fighting anymore? I know. Lord, you let us get discouraged. We face too much too quickly. Not so. He didn't take you on the shortest path to the end. He purposely led you around the Philistine country just to learn one lesson. Church, we can quote the spiritual armor of God all day long. If we don't learn what peninsula warfare is, it's all useless. Say, oh, pastor, I know. Do you? Do you know what peninsula warfare is? We want to operate in the spiritual gifts. We want to operate in the spiritual armor of God and we want to do it safe, secure, proud, and strong. God could have led them into the promised land in under a month. He took 40 years to do it. He led them intentionally along a road to teach them something. And the first thing he did, according to the 14th chapter of Exodus, is teach them peninsula warfare. Start with me in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth between. Somebody say between. between. Say it again. I couldn't hear the rest of you. Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert and, of course, the sea. And I will harden myself. I'm sorry. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. Peninsula warfare is when God marches you out on a plank. In any direction you turn, you lose. Why would he do that? We're so unwilling to get out on the plank. Put myself into a position of harm? That's not very wise, you know. 
God wants us to be good stewards of our lives. Faith never borders on irresponsibility. We can safely manage our Christian walk from our committees, make the most well-balanced and reasoned decisions. Then why did God march His people into an indefensible, absolutely untenable position trapped by the desert, Migdal, and the sea with only one possible escape. What was their escape? The only thing that would save them is a sovereign move of God. Church, I think it was Hudson Taylor said, finances are low again. It's impossible. Only a sovereign move of God will save us. Praise God, we're in good hands. Church, you can say that you got all the armor in the world until we learn one vital lesson. That's to trust our God in every situation. Then you don't have anything. You can quote this Bible like an encyclopedia. But if you don't trust your God, what good will it do you? Well, tell me something. If we trust our God, how is it 95% of all missions in the world are not addressing Islam. How is that even possible? Could it be that there's some disobedience in there? How is it that the least converted people group on the planet is Islam? Could it be that there's a lack of trust there, that maybe fear has entered? In chapter 14, let me show you about the nature of our God. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army. What do you do when you're in front of somebody? You're leading them. The Lord better be out front. If you ever look up and the Lord's not in front of you, then you're not following Him. With one exception. God has a different tactic in peninsula warfare. He had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. When does God ever go behind His people? The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Repeat after me. God has got my back. Do you really believe that? Then how can we be scared to put ourselves in harm's way? See, when we fight to protect our lives, when we not only cushion and pamper our lives, but refuse to put ourselves in vulnerable situations, we can be armed, but we have no idea what to do in battle. They were armed the day they left, but God took them out onto a peninsula to teach them to trust Him. That's where every victory would come. It doesn't come by the sword that He gave you. It doesn't come by the shield or the helmet or the belt or the buckler. It comes by trusting Him. What could put your trust to the test more than saying, I want you to go hug the people that are dedicated to kill you? But what could gain more glory for the living God than when they fall in love with Him? Is there a people more dedicated on the planet to the destruction of the Jewish race than Hamas? Is there a people more dedicated on the planet to the destruction of Judaism at large than Hezbollah? Then what happens when they fall in love with a Jewish king? 
See, church, it's not a geopolitical struggle. I mean, it may show up that way. It's a prayer struggle. It's a spiritual struggle. So, well, I want salvation. How many of you have been praying with me for salvation in the land of Babylon? See, we've been, we had a Monday night meeting, and man, people learned stuff, and it was good. How many of you have witnessed to a Muslim since then? So why don't we move on? See, we're fine with warfare occurring somewhere else. I'm going to tell you it's when it touches your soil that it touches your heart, though. And it is coming. Hey, do you hear me? It's very quiet in here. It is coming. Don't teach your children about Islam. Don't teach your children to know their Bible. And you are condemning them to slavery that the rest of the world is experiencing. President said we're not at war with Islam. I say that 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus Christ himself declared war on what would later become Islam. And not just Islam, every other evil of the day. Jesus Christ is at war with the passions of your flesh. He's at war with all of the enslaving work of the devil. Are you at war with him? How many of you would say that you are warring against sin? How many of you would say, say, actually say, I am being, I'm at war with sin? One more time. Then we can't be passive about those who have already fallen victim to it. If you're at war with it, you don't stand by and watch somebody else die from it. If you're at war with it, you're at war with it, not just it as it relates to you. Are you hearing me? Do you care only about your salvation or do you care about the salvation of others? Here comes message number three. You ready? If you're at war, and you said you were, I'd like to talk to you about five-star generals. You can't get a five-star general unless it's wartime. At least we've never had one. I don't think we've had a five-star general actually since 1980. And the last one died. Promoted during World War II. Five-star generals are men who have achieved the highest rank because they have led a war campaign. Can we all agree that soldiers at peacetime and soldiers at wartime are different soldiers? I'd like to talk to the church about how you can be a five-star general. When pastors do this, it can be trite, Sunday schoolish. If you were a three-star general, I think you'd be a hero. I'd settle for two, but I'm going to push you for all five. The first one is in wartime. You have a different kind of medicine. Anybody been injured? Gabe, what you got on your arm? Gabe, what happened to your arm? It broke. Did it, did it break a little bit or break a whole lot? The Stevens go all out. I mean, we, we do things big time. 
his hand ended up in the middle of his forearm. We're at peacetime as a nation. So you know what you do? You spend all day and all night in a hospital and they set it. And if they didn't get it set right, then you go back and you get it set again. Amen, Gabe? Then you cast it. And when that cast becomes uncomfortable in a couple weeks, they'll put another cast on it. And we have an indefinite period of time to get that little arm better because it's peacetime. What did they do in the Civil War if you broke that arm? You cut that sucker off and put a gun in the good hand. We need wartime medicine. We need to learn to cut sin right out of our life, not wait and slowly wean ourselves off of it, not get a little better over time. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. And let's talk radical amputation for at least one scripture. Wartime medicine looks completely different than peacetime medicine. Christians, if we quit dancing through the tulips in regard to things that are killing us, let me just go ahead and say half of you should not have a data plan, period. You shouldn't get on your neighbor's Wi-Fi. You've got no business being on a computer at all. It doesn't help you. It hasn't benefited your life. It hasn't caused you to grow in Christ. You need to cut it off. Ephesians 4.22 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Say former. You know the thing about former is it is no longer. That's why it's called former. You were taught with your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a putting off and there's a putting on. It's not enough to say, well, I simply put it off. You're just a crippled. And you can't put on the new without putting off the old. The church says, look, I know I'm nasty. I know I'm ratty. I know I'm still covered in grave clothes. But I'm living the resurrection life. Liar. You've just learned to say it. You know how you know you've got the resurrection life? When you have cut off and put on. Cut off that old injury. Throw it away and replace it with Christ. When there's more Christ than there is of you, well, then we'll talk about wartime medicine. You know, when somebody walks in here and they've got prosthetics, you can feel sorry for them or you can go look at the valor. In Christ, we need to be willing to amputate. Pastors don't do it. Churches don't do it. You don't ever see Matthew 18 put into practice anymore. Few of you have been here long enough to see it happen. I want to tell you, if you have habitual sin in your life, how many years are you going to fall to the same sin before there's a radical amputation? And if you can't find a single year of your Christian walk that you did not fall to it, then ask yourself a question. Do you love it more than Jesus? And before you answer it, ask what your actions say. We want a greater anointing. We want a greater outpouring. It comes at a greater cost. There needs to be so little of your life left that you can literally say, I lost my life. I lost my life in Christ. In addition to wartime medicine, somebody say, that's good, Pastor. 
I'm preaching better than you're listening right now. In addition to wartime medicine, there's wartime economics. I'm not going to pass a plate. I'm simply going to put 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 7 on the screen. In wartime economics, all of a country's resources go for the production of weaponry. And you do not waste precious resources on things that are not for the production of weaponry. On Highway 59 near 610, during the World War II war effort in this country, there was a sign that said, save a cap, kill a Jap. Not politically correct these days, but when you're at war with Japan, they even saw bottle caps as potential weaponry if accumulated, collected, melted down, and turned into a weapon. What if you ran your household that way? What if you were conducting a war on sin and its effects and every resource you had went to that instead of whatever it is that it goes to? Let me ask you, how many of you have seen our church budget? How many of you heard a lot about our church budget? I assure you, we don't lie to you about it. We're constantly reviewing it to make sure we're practicing wartime economics. Is it going for the production of weaponry or not? We're going to review it again because I think we can cut further and go deeper. Will you join me in that effort? There's nations that we have not been to. I'm about to drag my fat body up 15,000 foot cliffs and down the other. How many of you men have been in Peru with me? Does it hurt to even mention the words? I never wanted to hear the song, I'll climb this mountain again. I never wanted to hear. If Brent weren't talking about bringing Teresa, I would just cry and say I couldn't do it. But since there's a chance a girl's going, I'm not going to cry in front of you. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, do you excel in faith? In speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm saying adjust your lives for the war effort. I promise I'm not talking about a person in this room for this second. If it applies to you, then you take it, swallow it, live on it, let it grow, whatever you need to do. But yesterday, somebody was talking to me about Disney World. You can have the magical kingdom or you can have the kingdom. You can rarely have both. You say, well, Pastor, God wants us to... Okay. Okay. I went to Disney World 21 years ago and I even had good experience there. How many times do you need to go to the magical kingdom before you join the war effort? So, well, we all need rest. We all need... Oh, Okay. How much? You get two days a week already. How much? So, well, we just need vacation. Oh, okay. How much do you need? Because there's an actual war going on. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to rest. In fact, we don't rest enough. We don't actually take Sabbaths. I'm simply saying how much can we spend on entertainment and relaxation while there is a war going on? If it threatened your home, you wouldn't do it. I'm going to end the third part and go to the fourth soon. 
The third star, wartime protocols. When it's wartime, you do things different than peacetime. In peacetime, we found out at Fort Hood that soldiers don't carry guns at the base because it's their home. So one Muslim man can walk in and shoot uh, everybody. Not even a very good shot. How does that happen? Well, when it's wartime, you don't go anywhere without a partner. And you don't go anywhere without a rifle. Because it's wartime. You have wartime protocols. When it's peacetime, you act differently than when it's wartime. The church needs a return to wartime protocols. We need it. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. We're going to put it on the screen for you. Tell me you're awake. Tell me you want to be awake. Say, I want life. I want fire. How many of you want the fire of God? Don't think we can get the fire of God with arms crossed and sluggish eyes. Your spirit may be willing, but your flesh is weak. So command your flesh to come back to life. We still got a couple stars. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in what? How much of your day is civilian? Say, well, I got to live in this world, do you? I'm at war with the objects of this world. Well, you're in full-time ministry. I didn't know there was another kind. I didn't sign up for part-time Jesus. If you did, then it may have been Acorn that signed you up, but it was not the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of voter fraud going on in the kingdom. Church, civilian affairs are every time we get distracted from the eternal for the temporal. He said he wants to please his commanding officer. One day last week, uh, no hands for this one. You have my permission to be completely silent. One day last week, any one day, did you finish the day? Get on your knees and say, King Jesus, you're a monarch. Your rule is real. Your kingdom is real. Were you happy with my performance today? Or do you simply consider that it's all great because you didn't have any gross sin that other people could point out? See, if you have a wartime protocol, you care whether or not your commanding officer is happy with your performance. You actually have regular performance evals. Fourth star, wartime commendations. Soldiers are concerned with valor, not just existing. Particularly career soldiers. The guys who are enlisted and they're going back and going back and going back. Did you know that you cannot get a medal of honor unless you're on a field of combat? It may not have to technically be war, but if you are not facing an enemy combatant, you cannot even get a medal of honor. In Christ, we say, oh, we have all we need. We've been awarded everything, not if you've not been on the field of combat. Can I tell you what the Medal of Honor might look like? Turn with me to Acts 19. Say there when you're there. Oh, wow, it's 1220. I have worn out your attention span. In Acts 19, listen to what... A medal of honor looks like. 
Some Jews who went around, Acts 19.13, driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. In the name of Jesus, what? Whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Did you know that demons know who Jesus is? And I know about Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Say, I don't get it, Eric. I don't know. What's What's the Medal of Honor? The enemy knew his name. The enemy knew his name because he was dangerous. The enemy knew his name because he had been taking it to the enemy. He was not a passive recipient. He was not an entitled Christian. He was the kind that went into enemy territory and turned it upside down. They burn their religious books when Paul leaves this place. The whole city is in an uproar because of him. And they proclaim that he is robbing their deity of its majesty. That's a medal of honor. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's not a medal of honor. The things that this world honors you for are not the things that the kingdom of God honors you for. I'm saying you better ruffle some feathers. If you don't, you may never have stepped onto a field of combat. You may have been tricked into believing that by sitting on a pew, you're doing all that you are called to do. I cannot find a scripture that even suggests that that might be true. You cannot be commended for valor if you don't get in combat. I imagine you want to get to the fifth star. Do you want to get to the fifth star? What is the fifth star? If you had your wartime medicine right, you'd be holy. If you had your wartime economics right, you'd be committed. If you had your wartime protocols right, you'd be almost unbeatable. If you had your wartime commendations right, you'd be so engaged in the campaign, nothing could distract you. What is the one thing that you want when you go to war? I mean, what is it about Israel that is just sticking at Damas right now? It has all the UN weasels whining. Oh my God. There's a disproportionate use of force. Yeah, that's the point. I hope in every fight I'm involved in, there's an extraordinary disproportionate use of force. I don't know how much it's going to take. I'm just going to use all I got. The fifth star in war is you need wartime firepower. Wartime firepower. In the third chapter of Exodus, God spoke out of the flames to Moses because our God is a consuming fire and his servants are ministers of fire. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm fired up for the Lord. If you're on fire for the Lord, then the stubble sitting around you ought to be catching blaze. Maybe you need to rub shoulders some. I'm fire for the Lord. 
When Moses met with God, do you remember what it did to him? It lit his face up. He went up on a mountain and he met with the consuming fire that was God and people could see visibly something. Jesus called you the light of the world. If you're not the light, you hadn't touched his fire. Said, so, well, as Moses, he's unique in history. Those dispensationalists, shame on them. They've ruined theology for you. Because in Leviticus 9, at a tabernacle, the 24th verse says, God answered them with fire from heaven. If God began this in fire, if he answered the Levitical priest with fire from heaven, if in Second Chronicles in the 7th chapter, Solomon prayed at the temple of God and fire fell, what should you expect to happen when you pray? You'll never make it into the five-star general realm without the firepower of God. Let me ask you something. Were the apostles one star? Two? The apostles, what were they, three? Were they four? Five. How'd they get five? Jesus Christ said, you wait in Jerusalem until you receive what my Father has promised. They didn't watch their clock and go, I'm sorry, don't have time. They didn't decide that the latest episode of Lost was more important, that the Super Bowl was on. They didn't decide that it wasn't worth it. On the day that fire fell at Pentecost, what were they doing? They were praying in the upper room. More than 500 people saw Jesus alive. Paul said that to the Corinthian church after the resurrection. 500. How many were in the upper room? Not everybody will wait for the fire to fall. There's 380 that are missing in action. They saw the resurrected Christ, but they were not in the upper room waiting for the fire to fall. If Nolan and I are fighting, stand up, Nolan. His beard's impressive. That says a lot about a man. There is the weapon that Nolan can see, and he's probably pretty concerned about that. Let's just suppose that I had a Springfield Armory 45, right? Would you be concerned? Maybe. Maybe. The concealed weapon is the one that usually kills you, though. In hand-to-hand combat, it's not the weapon that you see. It's the weapon that you failed to see that ends your life. Do you know what the concealed weapon for you is, Christian? It's not your speaking ability. It's not your singing ability. It's not how much you know about the Word. It's your closet prayer life. See, what you don't know is that Jesus defeated the enemy the night before his soldiers reached them in battle. He waited for the fire of God. They waited at Pentecost for the fire of God. We need to be baptized in the fire of God. If her worship service goes from 40 minutes to four hours, does that upset your schedule so bad? You say it doesn't. But isn't there already, among people who love me and I love you, a mild discomfort at how long this one's going? Think about it. What is the fire of God worth? Here's the issue, though. Pastors have promised 
and it's not been delivered. See, if you do these five steps, then you will. If you give to this, then you will. If you follow our ministry in Motorcycle Boots, Florida, or whatever it is, then you will. It was never up to the pastor. You know who it's up to? You. The fire of God fell in my living room last night. You know what? We didn't have any sound equipment. We, we didn't have a worship team. We had one young man and a guitar and about seven hungry hearts. The fire of God fell in my living room the morning before, precisely because no one else was in the house but me. The fire of God fell and even our dogs got excited and started running all over the place. You do not need five glorious steps to the fire of God. You simply need an unquenchable hunger. You need it. Could we be honest and say whether we have it or not? See, you rarely receive something from God you claim to already have. I'm going to tell you, I don't have nearly enough. I got an awful lot of zeal. That's how God made me. I'm an energizer bunny. But zeal won't get it done. When you're standing on the peninsula facing Pharaoh, facing the desert, facing the sea, the fire of God is either there or it's not there. I want to pray and ask the fire to fall. I'm not interested in a marathon service. That's not the point. I'm interested in adjusting our hearts for the fire. Yeah? Do you legitimately burn for souls? Or is it a passing thought? Do you legitimately care? about the nations you're praying for, or are you not? See, it's easy to talk the Christian talk. So little is actually required of us. I'm saying we can go further together. I need your help. I need your if I'm meeting with Julia, talking about the glories of God, I cannot be witnessing to your neighbor. And if I'm witnessing to your neighbor, I cannot be counseling Jennifer on her deep depravity. <laughs> you cannot elect your champion. This is not that kind of battle. You're actually going to have to get in the game. And to get in the game, I just gave you five ways to do it. Let's cut off what doesn't belong and replace it with Christ. Let's commit our household budgets as if it was a wartime effort. I'm not asking you to do anything that we haven't done. If I eat three times a day and get to preach the gospel, that's all I've wanted. That's, that's it. And because a bunch of you are dropping off groceries here and there, we're eating three times a day and eating well. Look at us. practicing wartime protocols. I'm asking the Lord every day if he's pleased. I'm not ready to coast. I'm not done. Are you done? Have you gotten all you want? I'm looking for wartime commendations. I want to stand with those men of valor. I want to stand with the Hebrews Hall of Fame and not be ashamed. And I want the fire of God. 
they saw what looked like tongues of fire landed on each one. And then what happened? They heard them speaking in other tongues. If you say you have received the Holy Spirit and it cannot be seen or heard in any way in your life, you're deceived. Given 10 minutes, which I'm not going to take, given 10 minutes, I can show you the clear historical record is not sometimes, every time someone received the Holy Spirit, it could either be seen or heard. Something happened. The Holy Spirit of God does not inhabit a human being and leave him the way that he found him. You abide in him and he is to abide in you and you'll end up doing his work. Could y'all stand to your feet?